if you want to be brilliant at a moment's notice, you have to begin far upstream from the moment you need a brilliant idea. You have to build practices into your life, build some infrastructure. Anything important that happens in our world has an infrastructure that supports it, some sort of scaffolding that holds it up. But many of us expect creativity and effectiveness just to happen just by sheer virtue of our talent. Welcome to Elevate, a podcast about achievement, personal growth, and pushing limits in leadership and life. I'm Robert Glazer, and I chat with world-class performers who have committed to elevating their own life, pushing the limits of their capacity, and helping others to do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Yo-Yo Ma. Passion is one great force that unleashes creativity because if you're passionate about something, you're more likely to take risks. Our guest today, Todd Henry, helps others unlock their creativity and passion for their work. He's the founder of The Accidental Creative and delivers keynotes and workshops all over the world to help creative people and teams do brilliant work. Todd's the best-selling author of several books, including his latest, The Motivation Code, which came out earlier this month. And he's also the host of their very popular podcast, The Accidental Creative. Todd, welcome. It's great to have you join us on the Elevate podcast. Bob, it's so great to be here. You're going to make me follow Yo-Yo Ma? Are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> set a high bar for you. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree with you. I always tell people I like lowered expectations or like if they read a <laughs> one-page bio, I'm like, you just set me up for failure now. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> it's so good to be with you. I will tell you also, we recently had you on our show and it was uh, one of the, the shows that we just got so many comments about and people just absolutely loved what you had to say. So thanks for visiting our show as well. Great. Yeah, no, that was a lot of fun. So, you know, to me, creative people don't tend to have linear childhood. So I'd love to hear, I, I, not the story of your whole childhood, but what did, what did sort of your early life and, and career look like? Yeah, so I grew up in a very rural environment uh, in Southern Ohio. Uh, imagine farms as far as you can see. That was kind of the environment I grew up in. So I'd get on my bike and ride all day long. If we wanted to do something, we had to figure out what to do because you know the, the nearest movie theater was 45 minutes away. So yeah. it wasn't like we were just going to the movies or going and hanging out. Um, we had to figure out what we were going to do. So we did all kinds of crazy things. Like my friends and I tried to build a helicopter out of a lawnmower engine, which in retrospect was remarkably dangerous but we tried to do it anyway. We would you know, make movies in the woods. Like we would just do all kinds of things just to kind of try to keep ourselves occupied and, and to express our creativity. And at the time, I think I kind of maybe lamented that other people had access to more things. But in retrospect, I realized, wow, that was probably a huge gift because if I wanted to do something, I had to figure out what I was going to do. I had to invent things. My friends and I had to make up things to play or make up things to do. We weren't distracted. So that was, that was kind of a really cool thing. Went to school, studied marketing and graduated with a marketing degree. And like any good marketing major, immediately did my tour of duty in the music business. <laughs> uh, and uh, actually on the performing side and performed for a handful of years uh, as a musician, full-time musician in my early 20s. And again, this is, wow, almost 30 years ago now. And then ended up after a period of time realizing, okay, this is probably not going to be a long-term viable strategy if I want to like build a career and actually like have a family. And, you know, I mean, some people can make it work. That's fantastic. Wasn't really for me. So, uh, you know, as the story goes, I met a girl, we kind of started to settle down and I ended up navigating into the role as a, a creative director for an organization where I led a team of about three dozen people. Uh, over the course of several years. And in the midst of leading that team, this is about 2005, 
I started really looking for resources to help me understand the pressures of what I was calling the create on demand world, right? Just having to go to work and solve problems and make things up every day, really struggling to find resources. And so there's this new thing called podcasting that had just yeah. become a, a brand new technology. So I started a podcast on a whim in 2005 called The Accidental Creative and started just sharing some things I was learning and some insights for other people. And the podcast pretty quickly took off, um, was invited to come and give you know a couple of talks to organizations or at conferences. And I realized, wow, there might actually be a business here because people seem to really want to have this conversation about how to be prolific, brilliant, and healthy all at the same time. And uh, then was offered a book deal by Penguin Random House in 2009. And that was really kind of the start of my uh, full-time leap into being a full-time consultant and advisor and basically traveling the world, writing books and speaking and, and training people. So that's what I've been doing now for a little over the last decade. I've written five books, all published with Penguin Random House. And as you mentioned, my most recent motivation code just came out about a week and a half ago as we're recording this. So it's been a pretty fun and unexpected journey. Yeah, it's an interesting time to launch a book as I'm, I'm sure you're uh, figuring out. I had a book launch last month and yeah, it's <laughs> in the media world that there's a few topics that they care about more than others right now. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I should have probably just given it a political title, even though it has nothing to do exactly. with book, yeah. just to get the attention. Right. But you know, what's funny too is, and, and those of us who do this a lot, you know, we've, you and I both have published multiple books now. Um, there's always this thing where we we will go out and give speeches for companies who want to order bulk copies of our book, right? Yeah. Like large numbers of, of books. Well, I was trying to figure out like, why are people not doing that? Why are we like in the past they've done that? Why are they not doing Well, I realized it's because how do you get books to people, right? It's, like, it's very expensive. Yeah. I mean, because yeah, it can absolutely. be 30% of the price of the book. This is not Amazon. So yeah. Right. Absolutely. So it's a different game where you can't just order 500 copies and pass them out at the company meeting or whatever, or leave them on the table for people to pick up. You can't do that. You have to individually ship them to every person. And so it's just a really unique and interesting time. That's just one of those, you know, sort of consequences of where we are right now that we're all, we're all innovating. We're all trying to figure out how to get to the next place. Yeah. You, you made me think of two, as you were talking about the early part of your life, you made me think of two totally different things. And I'll start with the the personal story, which was, I, I love to play with stuff. And we had like a box of like electronic stuff or plugs or whatever. And I, I think I remember being eight or nine and I, I distinctively, there was this game and it had nine volt battery. And then there was this cord, like extension cord that was like, my mom, I think used to make lamps. And so it was like, it plugged into the wall and it was open, you know, on the other end, like the, the prongs. So I was like, Oh, I'll, I'll attach the, the nine volt prongs to the cord and plug it in. When this be great the thing will run on power. And it like exploded in the room and like almost, I don't think I've ever told my parents this. I almost like burned the house down. So <laughs> we have that in common. I actually almost set our house on fire with my chemistry set too. Yeah. Same situation. And like for, I think for years after that, my parents thought that I had somehow tracked tar in on the carpet yeah. or something. But the reality was, no, I actually set a small fire in our house. I, I was an experiential learner, right? I probably did not pay attention to any of the <laughs> stuff on power in class, but I now understood the currents and voltage and all that stuff. Stuff. Well, again, like to get back to the, just the craziness and danger, like how dangerous it was, what we were doing. One of my friends tried to create a ruby rod laser by making his own synthetic ruby. And the amount of 
pressure that he had to create in order to do that, like would have instantly killed him had he been successful. But like our parents had no idea we were doing this stuff. We were just like playing around with all these really dangerous mechanisms. And, but you know, it was great and it's fine that, Hey, we're alive. Right. So. Yeah. It's the value of the skin knee. And also, I mean, you said something really important that technology has deprived these days, which was that boredom drives creativity. No one's bored anymore. They can grab the phone, they can turn on the thing. But when you see kids come up with, when they're given constraints, like they're outside, there's nothing going on. It's COVID, like make up a game, they make up a game. And I I do think situationally technology these days is, is creating environments that deprive us of the constraints that drive creativity. Right. Absolutely. No question. And, you know, I think that having the ability to step back and to think systemically and to turn the noise into, I mean, Dehawk, the founder and chair emeritus of Visa had this great framework where he talked about basically everything begins as noise and noise becomes data when it achieves a cognitive pattern. Data becomes information when it's combined with other data in a meaningful way. Information becomes knowledge when you can think systemically about it. And then knowledge becomes understanding when you can use that knowledge to make decisions and, and see around corners. But knowledge bec- or, uh, understanding becomes wisdom when it's guided by some sort of ethical framework. And I think our job is to turn noise into wisdom. That's what we're trying to do is to get to that place where the noise becomes synthesized into a way that becomes wisdom for us. But the problem is that we're so distracted by the noise and maybe even the data that we never step back to look at the bigger patterns, to think systemically. So one of the gifts of having that space, and frankly, I mean, and this is terrible to say a gift of this time, you know, this last several months, because I mean, my goodness, like this has been a horrific season on so many fronts, but one of the gifts has been, you know, this forced lockdown with no commutes, with no, uh, you know, sort of bouncing from thing to thing, none of the typical trappings of our day. One of the gifts of that has been that I think for many of us, we have had the ability maybe just to step back and think, what am I doing with my life? What is it really all about, you know, and to maybe think a little more systemically and to turn some of that noise into wisdom. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Well, you and I were talking before the show, and I mean, to share a great example of that, we know a lot of people who, you know, we both do some speaking, but we know a lot of people who that's their livelihood, right? And that was just lost overnight. And so they started to develop alternatives, you know, courses, content, online stuff that scaled. A lot of them I know don't want to go back to the road warrior speaking thing they were doing before. I, I think it's opened some stuff to them that they wouldn't have thought of before, but but actually services their needs better and maybe even the market better. It does. The, the challenge is, you know, you don't pick up where you left off, right? Um, there are some inefficiencies at the beginning. It's like learning a new skill. You know, you're you're going to suck at first. You're going to be terrible. And yeah. You have to deal with that season of incompetence in order to push through it and develop a new skill and to get to a level of competence where you're comfortable with something. The problem is whenever there's this kind of disruption, there's going to be that season where things are going to dip a bit. And I think many of our friends and, and a lot of industries are dealing with this, um, You know, but I think especially like you mentioned, our friends who are in the event industry, which basically speaking is an event industry uh, occupation. You know, It's not like it's just going to... Tra- I mean, I have friends who say, well, just just move everything online, right? Just do virtual. It's so easy. Well, but it doesn't really work that way. You know, there are all kinds of um, supply and demand types of things that have to settle out, you know, first, like it's going to take a while for us to settle into it. Um, There are planning cycles to account for, there are budgets to account for, you know, uh, what is it worth versus what was it worth before? And we were talking about this before, you know, like you and I to go, to California or to, you know, go to Manila, Philippines or something to speak. Like those are very different. There are very different pricing expectations for that because it's not just the 60 minute speech. It's all that's involved in that versus sitting down in front of a camera and doing it over zoom. Right. So there are all these types of things that have to be sorted out. And there's going to be a season where it's, you know, there's, it's going to be like the train that's trying to, to take off and all the cars kind of go, coo, 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 you know, when they yeah. sort of latch and then they start moving. I feel like we're in sort of those latching moments right now. And I think it's going to start moving, but we have to wait to see how things settle out first. Well, you said something in there that was really important. And I think I remember it was, a, it was a, something that Steve Jurvetson said 20 years ago, and I've never forgotten of Draper Fisher Jurvetson. You said people just move it to virtual or shift. I think people tend to port an old thing onto a new thing without parsing out what should be different. Like one of the things I heard early on from speakers, they're like, don't just do an online speech. You're online. Use the interactive piece. Use the ability to follow up. Use group. You know, you, it should be different than a keynote. You shouldn't just be porting it. What Steve said is we tend to use new things wrong. Like the first movies were basically like filmed theatrical productions. Uh, you know, they didn't use the benefit of what they could do. And, and he said, when e-com came out, what was the first thing everyone did? They created like online malls, right. That sort of replicated yeah. like the mall experience. I, and I think this is another one of those, right. The creativity is actually what could be better. What do I need to take out? How do I adapt, you know, that not just port it to this new thing, because I I think that doesn't work in most cases. 
Agree completely. And, you know, I mean, the, the gift of, you know, I'm doing virtual presentations now, the gift of using multiple cameras, the gift of yeah. having complete control of what's on the screen at any given time, the gift of being able to draw and sketch things and have them appear on the screen. You know, if I want to sort of sketch out a concept for people and I can just instantly, oh, wait, you know what, let me show you this. And boom, I can just do it versus the technology that's necessary for that to happen in a live environment, um, especially if it's impromptu. It's just incredible the level of control we have over how we shape these experiences. But to your point, I think so many people still just kind of sit and stare into the camera and bring up a full screen slide deck, you know, and just kind of deliver that same speech. And we can't. And it's going to be a gift on the other side. It is. We're going to learn new skills. We're going to adapt. We're going to be more resilient. That's what always happens in the face of adversity. You, you have to become more resilient as a result of the adversity. On the other side of it, you're going to be more resilient. Your business model is going to be more resilient. Your income stream is going to be more resilient. But it really is difficult in the moment. And that's just what we have to do if we want to grow. We have to go through these moments of difficulty and pain in order to become more resilient on the other side. Taking a step back, um, setting the foundation, in, in terms of creativity, I, I think it's a broad term. I know it means different things to different people. How do you define creativity, especially in the context of your work? Yeah, I th- that's a great question. I think that we often conflate creativity with art. Often we'll hear people say, oh, well, I'm not creative. Because, and what they mean by that is I don't design things. I don't you know, draw. I don't make music. And so they think they're not creative. But the reality is creativity is just problem solving. That's all it is. And we all have to solve problems. So if you're an entrepreneur, you're solving problems. You're finding white space in the market. You're creating a product or a service that fills that white space. You're developing a strategy. You're developing systems to service whatever that offering is you are being creative. It's just not what we typically think of as art, right? Um, so you're you're prone to all of the same dynamics, pressures, issues that the typical quote unquote creative is prone to. It's just that maybe you're not recognizing yourself as creative. So if you solve problems, you are creative. You are, as I call it, you sort of nounized this word now, you are a, a creative if you have to solve problems every day. Right, I guess... Creative and le- it seems to be similar to the discussion around leadership, around, you know, is there some innate piece of it, but you can learn to get better, you know, but you you need that innate piece in order to be great? Because I'm not saying anyone can't be creative, but there are definitely people who come out of the womb, like creative, <laughs> right? And then yeah. they can learn skills to be better. So what is the, I, I think it's very similar to discussion around leadership. How do you sort of look at the nature nurture spectrum of it? Yeah. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, we, we often fail to recognize the nuance in these kinds of conversations that there are people who are just naturally gifted at seeing what's unseen, right? They can connect dots. I mean, Steve Jobs famously quipped that creativity is just connecting things. There are some people who are more naturally inclined to connect those dots because of the way their, their brain works. You know, it just is a reality. There are some people who are just naturally more adept at solving certain kinds of problems. Like for example, visual designers solve a problem by creating a visual solution. Um, there are some people who just see the world that way. They see the world in patterns and shapes and colors and textures. And that's just the way they see the world. That's not me at all, right? But but if you ask me to write something for you, I can write a really compelling argument. That's how my creativity finds expression. That's how I solve problems. Or to teach something, like that's how my creativity comes across. So I think we often fail to recognize the nuance in this and to recognize also that there are different kinds of 
creative people. Um, there are what we could call fast twitch creative people. And these are people who walk into a meeting and you give them a problem. You know, it's like a brainstorming session or something. You give them a problem and they come up with a hundred ideas in the first five minutes. And frankly, yeah. like 98 of them are probably terrible. Right. Those people just need to bat like, like a hundred. And, and, and then they usually have one idea that's worth all of the crazy ones. Right. Exactly. It's exactly right. But then you have people who are what I call slow twitch creatives. And these are people who may sit through the entire meeting and not offer a single idea. But then two days later, they come and they knock on your door and they say, hey, I just had an insight about something. I wanted to share an idea I had about our meeting the other day. And it's like the most profound thing you've ever heard in your life. And it's so amazing and eloquent and beautiful. But the problem is you've already made a decision to move on because you know you had your brainstorm two days ago and people are already executing whatever idea you settled on. So you know, we tend to think of quote unquote creative people as those people who can have a hundred ideas in five minutes. But again, there are different modes of creating. And some people, I'm, I am a slow twitch creative. I'm someone who needs time to synthesize, to think, to process, to develop ideas. Um, we need to recognize that that is a, a large percentage of people out there. They, they need the time necessary to be able to connect those dots. Are you an introvert? I am. Yeah, I, I think this is part of really understanding your team, right? And if I worked with you for a while, I knew that. And we were in a meeting and Sally is spitting out ideas and you're sitting there quietly thinking, you know, you'd have to, as a leader, say, all right, Todd, you know, I know that you like to sit on these things a little bit. So Sally had some good ideas. Why don't you come back to me tomorrow and let me know if you came up, like kind of create the space for that person. Absolutely. Well, and that's a methodology that I actually teach when I yeah. work with organizations is, you know, don't call the spontaneous brainstorming meeting, right? Um, plan yeah. it in advance, assign the problem in advance, give people a couple of days to think about it, and then bring your best couple of ideas to the meeting. And by the way, the fast twitch people are going to start thinking about it about five minutes before the meeting, which yeah. is fine. But the slow twitch people are going to have a couple of days to really synthesize and, and bring a couple of fully formed ideas to the meeting, which can be helpful. And then that, that serves as a starting point then for discussion, for refining, for, you know, sort of getting to whatever the best idea might be. Uh, there's a framework of someone out there I, I, I've seen before, which I really liked. To me, it sort of defines creative too. And I, and I always say, I think this is a lot of cases where people ask me to get involved with something, but it's the fourth option, right? So when you think about a problem that's usually presented, which is like a battle or whatever, you, there's three options presented, right? One is, you know, A, the one side, <laughs> like, do we attack? Like, oh yeah, we attack. And then, you know, it, it either works or doesn't work. Do we not attack? That's B. And then there's some compromise option, <laughs> let's see. And probably the compromise is always the worst option, right? And mm -hmm. then the fourth option is almost you get to by saying, by taking one through three off the table and reframing the problem. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's the essence of creativity. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I, I think... There's a phenomenon I call ghost rules and ghost rules are these invisible narratives that creep into our lives and our organizations and they begin to bound our behavior in unhealthy ways and unproductive ways. And so when we start thinking, well, basically we only have three options, A, B, or C, that could be the result of a ghost rule, a limiting assumption that is guiding our behavior. And right. you know, I hear things in organizations all the time, like, you know, well, that'll never work around here or such and such client will never go for that or things of that nature. And we never stop to ask why. Right. This is where the Socratic method is really powerful here. 
Oh, unbelievably powerful. Asking questions, simply asking the why question, challenging assumptions. Now, listen, some of those assumptions are going to prove valid for sure. But let's say one out of every 25 assumptions that you question is a questionable assumption. Well, there's a tremendous amount of value just waiting to be captured if you can counter that invalid assumption. And maybe your competitors aren't even asking that question because they're living by the same ghost rules that you are. Yeah, we we had a coach, Cam Harold, who's great. We worked with him, and and when when someone said something couldn't be done, he would say, "What's the five reasons it couldn't be done to a team?" Mm-hmm. You'd put them on the whiteboard, and then you'd have the team say, "What could you do to overcome each of those objections?" So you'd make them answer all of it, <laughs> and it was really powerful methodology. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, you know, question asking is very inefficient, <laughs> which is why we don't yeah. do it. You know, we we often worship on the altar of efficiency, and so. Well, we get annoyed when somebody says, why? Why are we doing this? Or why is this the right approach? But uh, you know, if we want to talk about effectiveness and long-term value, those are the exact kinds of questions we need to be asking, especially early in the process. Now, when we get later in the process, that's a totally different calculus. You know, later in the process, we don't need to be questioning why we're even doing this. Um, that's already been decided. The door's been closed. We're, we're moving down the long hallway at that point. But in the early stages, those formative questions can be so important in helping us think around corners. So your first book, we talked about The Accidental Creative. Uh, How did you develop the concept for that book and why did you choose that topic? So that book was really the result of, you know, as I mentioned in 2005, I started that podcast. It was really the result of many, many years of painful experience. I mean, I wrote that book for create on-demand professionals uh, to help them understand some things that seem to work in terms of organizing and structuring their life and their day to prepare them to be brilliant at a moment's notice, you know, when it, when it matters most. So, you know, the sort of the long and the short of that book is if you want to be brilliant at a moment's notice, you have to begin far upstream from the moment you need a brilliant idea. You have to build practices into your life, build some infrastructure, anything important that happens in our world has an infrastructure that supports it. Some sort of scaffolding that holds it up. But many of us expect creativity and effectiveness just to happen just by sheer virtue of our talent. The problem is that talent eventually wears out. I mean, it doesn't mean you're not talented anymore. It means that you're not a machine. I'm not a machine. We can't sustain ourselves indefinitely just on talent alone. We have to have some infrastructure to support that talent. We see this all the time in the entertainment industry. I mean, there are people who are incredibly talented, but they just can't sustain a career. They can't build a career because they're shooting from the hip. You know, they're not being intentional about how they're structuring their life and their career. And the same thing applies to us as professionals. Yeah, that's really interesting. That was actually the subject of my Friday forward this morning. And I got into a pretty like an intense discussion about it. It's because someone was, I made a comment about sort of busts in sports and they were refuting some of the, the things behind that and uh, around that didn't take hard work. And I said, look, in middle and high school, if you have immense talent, like you can get by with pretty, <laughs> pretty mediocre effort, right? And then, and then you go to college and, and, and it's harder, but like then you get to the pros and everyone's talented. So right. at that point, the work and like you're saying, right, the, the methodology and the practice and this thing, like that's what separates it. The lower the playing field, the more you can just dominate with talent. 
Right. No, no question. No question. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just often reminded, I can't remember where the story came from, but it was a story about Kobe Bryant and, you know, he was working with a trainer and uh, said, you know, okay, well, what time do you want to meet? And the trainer said, well, let's meet at, you know, seven 30 in the morning. I'm, I'm going to get the details wrong, but the, the principal will hold either way, yeah. but um, you know, we'll meet at seven 30 in the morning at, at the gym. And so the you know trainer shows up at seven 30 in the morning and Kobe's running stairs, you know, he's in the upper part of the arena. And the trainer says, so you just, are you getting warmed up or what's going on? He's like, no, I've been here since 5.30 this morning. I've already got like, you know, 500 shots in and I've already run laps and I've already, you know, done all this stuff. You know, he had this regimen, like the training was just like something additional he was yeah. going to do. And really when you get to that level where you have to compete, the people who have disciplines, the people who have practices, the people who have some scaffolding to support them, they are going to eventually separate themselves from the pack. They are assuming that you have talent. Talent is the price of entry, but talent alone will not get you to the next level. Once you're, once you're playing in the big leagues, you have to have a set of disciplines and practices to separate you from the pack. Because at that point, the differentials are so small. They're so marginal, right? So you have to capitalize on that 2% difference maybe that you have. I love the analogy of the scaffolding. That's great. I have not heard that before. And I think that, you know, you're right. Some of it is passion and hard work and resilience, but that's all a function of this infrastructure, right? That you build around you. Yeah, absolutely. No question. Yeah. And and we talk about passion a lot. People often say, you know, follow your passion. You'll never work a day in your life. And yeah, yeah, I know that how you probably feel about that yeah. based on having read your writings. That's terrible advice. Terrible right. advice because we misunderstand the word passion. Yeah. We think passion means I'm going to love the tasks I do all day. We think passion means that I'm just going to fall in love with my job and be enraptured all day by everything I have to do. No, the, the root of the word passion is the word pati, which means to suffer. So when we talk about passion, what we really mean is that which we're willing to suffer on behalf of if necessary. So when we have a passion for our work, what it means is there is an outcome I am so committed to that I'm willing to walk through and endure whatever tasks I have to endure in order to achieve that outcome. And I might like some of the tasks. That's great. That's fantastic. But also I'm willing to do things I don't like in order to achieve an outcome I love. And once we discover that kind of passion, that completely changes the calculus of how we approach our day. Yeah, I, the example you gave, like the, I would say, the one person I might be jealous of in life is golfers, be professional <laughs> golfers, right? Because if they win ten million dollars, and you say, "What do you want to do on Monday?" They'd say, "Go play the same round of golf," right? Maybe not with the same. So, so it's almost synchronous between personal and professional. But for a lot of people, like let's say you know an analyst, then you know you might get passionate about diving into the numbers at at a certain type of company, you don't, you know, you might not even be passionate in their, in the mission. You just really enjoy the intellectual challenge of it or otherwise. So yeah, I, I very much agree with that. I think it's just, I almost, I think passion is a synonym for like caring sometime, like caring enough to want to be good at it and figure it out. For sure. No question. Hey, Elevate listeners, whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info the ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. 
Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com elevate. So a theme that crops up in several of your books is this idea of unleashing your best work. What, what do you think holds people back from doing that? And how do you help them overcome those blocks? I think one key thing is that we have to define what it is we're really trying to do. <laughs> um, and I think some people don't really have a good sense of why they're in this world and what it is they're trying to do. And I don't mean that necessarily even on a macro sense. I mean, just even in a micro sense, like they haven't really even defined the problems they're trying to solve in their work. Instead, they're just working on projects. Well, our minds didn't evolve to do projects. Our minds evolved to solve problems. You know, that's their problem solving machines. And so one of the things that stands in the way of doing great work is just a lack of clarity around what it is we're really trying to do. How do I define the problems I'm trying to solve today? I mean, we mentioned earlier the disruption that COVID has caused. That introduced an entirely different set of problems than what I was solving, you know, eight months ago or 10 months ago. Now, all of a sudden, I have an entirely new set of problems. But if I still go about my day trying to solve the same problems I was solving 10 months ago, I'm, I'm going to spin my wheels because the circumstances have changed. So focus isn't just about homing in on some very precise action or some very precise task that we have to do. Focus is about the ability to oscillate between that very micro sort of intent of what task do I need to do to move the ball forward, but also to be able to step back and say, am I still solving the same problem I was solving yesterday? Or has that problem changed because the circumstances have changed? And as we get better about stepping into and out of that kind of micro macro focus, we're going to begin to think more systemically about our work. And we're naturally going to, I think, do better work because we're going to understand the, the context into which it fits versus just getting lost in doing tasks. And I think people over time, they get distracted and they get off course because they're making really, really good progress, but they're doing the wrong thing. You know, they're solving the wrong problem because they're not asking the question, is this still the right problem to be solving? Right. Interesting. So let's jump forward to your new book, The Motivational Code, where you study different things that motivate us. How many different types of motivational drivers are there? And how do you, how does an individual determine what motivates them? Yeah. So typically we we think about motivation and this is really what all the research of the last you know, century has shown us is that we, we tend to divide motivation into two distinct categories, right? Extrinsic motivation, which are the external motivators. So think yeah. things like pay raises and, you know, words of encouragement and flexibility and perks and things like that, or even fear, frankly, right? Like fear is an extrinsic motivator because somebody is sort of like poking you and saying, you better get this done. And intrinsic motivation, which is those sort of inner drivers. And the work of Dietschy and Ryan uh, gave birth to this thing called self-determination theory, yeah. um, which has been written about extensively. But basically, the intrinsic motivation is comprised of autonomy, uh, connectedness, relatedness, mastery, purpose. You know, these kinds of words are used to describe intrinsic motivation. But we often separate intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. And we think these are completely distinct and separate things. They're not. The reality is, and the research shows that intrinsic and extrinsic motivation modify one another. So 
about four years ago, I came across uh, some research, a friend of mine who had spent 20 years in the management consulting firm. He had left the firm and he was working with a group of PhDs who were developing this framework for motivation. And what they had discovered over the course of about 50 years of research, beginning in the late 1960s, over a million achievement stories that they analyzed from over 100,000 people from all walks of life, is that there are about 27 unique ways that people talk about what drives them, about what feels gratifying or engaging to them in those moments when they've achieved something significant. And the interesting thing about this research is that these 27 themes describe that interplay between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation. So for example, let's say you and I both get a pay raise. Um, Our boss gives us a pay raise at the exact same time. Well, the reason that pay raise is significant to you, the reason it motivates you could be very different from the way it motivates me. For example, let's say that you're driven to evoke recognition. For you, the reason that pay raise motivates you is because your manager called you up in front of the entire organization and said, hey, just want to let you know that Bob is doing great work and we really appreciate Bob and the contribution that he's made. And so, you know, we're promoting him to a new level and giving him a pay raise or whatever. And that feels gratifying to you because somebody that matters to you recognized your contribution. And that's one of your core drivers is evoke recognition. And so you feel engaged, you feel motivated by that. For me, it could be, let's say I'm, I'm motivated by collaborate right? That's one of my motivational themes. It could be for me that it signifies that I have been a good team member, that I have been a good collaborative part of the team. And I don't care, the the pay raise is fine. But for me, it just signifies that the team has accomplished something significant worthy of me getting a pay raise. And what really motivates me is that team interaction that I get to be a part of, or maybe the pay raise comes with the promotion to be a part of a high functioning team. And that's what's going to keep me engaged because I love to work with and be around other people. So these themes really describe the unique ways in which we respond to the external stimulus in our environment and how those patterns play out over time. Yeah. So that research, I think that you mentioned in the beginning was behind Dan Pink's book Drive, which was super influential book on me in terms of thinking about how to build a a culture that's not based on, on extrinsic motivation. Right. And it is, it's a, I mean, he did such a wonderful job of synthesizing the research yeah. And sharing, you like I mentioned, talking about self-determination theory and all of that. And I think he called uh, what he wrote about motivation 3.0, I think is how he described it, right? right. Um, and really, the, we sort of informally say, we believe this is motivation 4.0, because it really kind of takes a lot of what Dan Pink talked about in the book Drive and puts a finer point on it, gives a little more specificity in terms of what that really means when we're intrinsically motivated. Um, you know, Because just saying we want to value intrinsic motivation may or may not necessarily be terribly helpful unless there are some specific handles you can put on it. For example, uh, someone is driven to bring to completion. That means that they're primarily engaged and driven when they're checking things off, moving things forward, completing tasks and moving on to the next one. If you understand that, you know how to motivate someone. If you like, for example, let me give you an example for me specifically. One of my top motivations is meet the challenge. That's my number two motivational driver. So if you come to me, Bob, and you say, Todd, I don't know if this is possible, but I'm already in. Like, I don't, I don't care what follows the butt. I'm already in. You, you had me at hello. <laughs> that's yeah. exactly right. You know, because you've just basically issued a challenge to me. You've said, I don't know if this is possible. I don't know if you can do this. I'm already in, period. 
Um, so once you understand that, you can begin to identify specific patterns in people's lives and their work as a manager. You can say, you know what, why, why do Jill and Joe always seem to fight in this meeting? You know, Jill's always asking questions and Joe's always frustrated with Jill and they just don't seem to get along. Well, it could be that Jill is motivated to explore. That's one of her primary themes. So she's asking, why are we doing this? And what if we tried this? And Hey, have you guys seen this? And let's try, you know, and Joe maybe is motivated to bring to completion. And he's like, are you nuts? Why are we asking these questions? questions. Let's just get it done and move on to the next thing, right? They get their motivational energy from different places. And previously we would have just said, well, they just don't get along. But once we understand what those motivational drivers are, we understand where they're getting their motivational energy, we can have a more meaningful conversation. So we can say, hey, Joe, we're still early in the project. We need to activate Jill's explore motivation right now and let her lead us in asking these important questions. And there's going to come a point in the process where Jill, we're going to have to say, Thank you for all of those explore questions, but we don't need those right now. What we need is for Joe to take charge. And Jill, let's put you on the next project so you can get out ahead of us, right? And start right. asking some of those questions. So we can lead in a much more meaningful way once we understand the landscape of motivation on our team. I'm curious. I heard this discussion going on a few weeks ago between two people, and it was interesting. Do you think you can motivate other people or can you only inspire them to motivate themselves? Yeah, you, I don't believe that you can motivate someone else. Yeah. I believe that you can evoke motivation from them. Yeah. Uh, meaning that you can do your best to try to frame up something for them in a way that's going to play to their natural motivation. But no, I mean, and, and even the research of DJ and Ryan shows this, you know, if we try to motivate someone by like, let's say giving them a pay raise, that's going to motivate them in the short term. But the reality is we all, re we all revert to the mean over time. It takes constant new infusions of extrinsic motivators in order to keep people motivated yeah. um, because people normalize. We all do that, right? We all normalize. Like, let's say you are motivated to evoke by evoke recognition. If I just come up to you every single day and give you recognition for what you're doing, well, it's going to kind of over time it's going to kind of lose its effectiveness, right? So we have to find ways of structuring the environment and structuring how we lead and how we interact with others such that it will evoke those motivators in people versus just relying on the typical blunt instruments that we use like pay raises and right. perks and you know those kinds of things. Yeah, I think that's really important for people to understand. So Todd, last question, and this could be singular or repeated, but what is a personal or professional mistake that you've made that you've learned the most from? Uh, the, and it's interesting because it actually relates to what I learned about myself. <laughs> I was going to say, you went, you went fast. No hesitation on that. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually went through um, a real process of sort of self-reflection when I discovered my motivation code four years ago when I first took this assessment because I realized, man, so many of the professional mistakes I have made are the result of me assuming everybody is motivated the way I am. I like to think about the future. I like to envision things and bring them about. That's sort of one of the ways I'm motivated. So I was leading a team of people, as I mentioned, a team of you know several dozen people, and we were going through a major organizational uh, restructuring. And I was just out ahead, leading the charge, leading the way, restructuring things, sending out communications here and there, and kind of just you know taking the team to the next place, completely unaware of the fact that nobody was following me to that place. Nobody was because yeah. everybody was thinking, am I still going to have a job? How is this going to affect my day-to-day -day work? How, you know, am I going to have to switch teams? Like, what, what does this mean for me? I was oblivious to that. I was just thinking, hey, something new, something exciting, let's go, right? And so what I've realized is, my goodness, as a leader, as a, as a manager, somebody who's accountable for 
other people in their jobs, I have to recognize there are going to be second and third order consequences to every decision I make. And my part of my responsibility is to step back and consider what are all of the second, third order consequences of me making this decision? When you have a, a long lever, yeah, you're going to move a lot of rocks. And sometimes people are going to get crushed between those rocks. And when you're moving big rocks around, you know, it can be really dangerous. It can shift the ground. And so I, I think it created a sense of empathy in me for other people and how other people are sort of tossed to and fro by decisions that I make. And also just a realization that, my goodness, not everybody thinks the way I do. And I think that's a trap we can fall into is to think that everybody generally sees the world the same way that we do, or everybody generally cares about the same things we do. Not at all. I mean, to bring it back to motivation code, there are 17,550 possible combinations of top motivations, right? So when you start thinking about it that way, you're like, wow, okay, there's an incredible diversity around me. And I need to step back and recognize that part of my job as a leader is to help other people bring their best to the table every day. And if that means slowing down on occasion to make sure everybody stays up, keep everybody can keep the pace. Um, that is a, a phenomenal and incredibly valuable investment of time. That's great advice. I hope people take it. So Todd, where can people learn more about you and your work? So the best place to go is toddhenry.com. If you want to know about, more about me, my podcast, all of my work, or if you want to know more about motivation code, you can go to toddhenry.com slash mcode. M-C-O-D-E, and uh, that'll take you to all the work with Motivation Code. All right, Todd, thanks for sharing your story with us today. You're doing important work, helping others to live their passion and, and tap into their creativity. Bob, thank you. And thanks for all the great work that you do. To our listeners, thanks for tuning into the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Todd and his work on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.